players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Brainstorm, Ponder, Consider, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello and welcome to episode 98 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Tech or Trash. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access or join as a YouTube member for the same content, but on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I'm Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. I am Brian Cook of TheEpicStorm.com. Shout out to our new members who just enjoyed the pre-show, LN997 and Bobby. Simply Bobby, like Cher or Madonna. Shout out to Bobby. Yeah, this week's pre-show is thick. We ran a little long, but uh, it's full of good stuff. It's bonus content. More bang for your buck. Buck up and go over to patreon.com slash eternal glory. And another place you might want to check out is Eminence Gaming. If you're interested in running an event or want your LGS to do so, but are worried about the logistics of it, check out Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software. You can create and manage four-player or 1v1 tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures that you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for more details. And with that being said, it's time to get into the trenches, and we're gonna, we're gonna fight tonight. Tonight is tech or trash. I spent an hour or so combing through deck lists, looking for hidden gems, questionable cards, and we're going to try to sort out which is which here on the pod today. And we'll be doing this live. All I've done is list the card names. We've had no pre-discussion, so uh, it's going to be wild in here. Plus, Phil told me that I could be a heel tonight, so dig in. Oh god, please don't get us cancelled. Or yourself. We have to work with you. Bryant being a heel aside, uh, we would like to preface this episode by saying that all of this is in good fun. And we appreciate innovation and legacy wherever it comes from, even if we think it looks suspicious. What do we know? You've probably done the math if we go after your pet card here and we haven't. We're just coming at it in good fun. All of these cards are like that scene at the start of the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie where they're underwater under an upside down boat breathing in the air pocket. Orlando Bloom is like, this is either genius or madness. And Captain Jack Sparrow is like, funny how often those traits coincide. That's... That's what we're talking about here. Genius or madness, and maybe a little bit of both. Shout out to the legacy innovators out there. Now let's uh, attack your personal choices. All right. Um, so as I started making the deck list, I obviously clicked on death and taxes first, and I've got, I've got three or four spicy meatballs here for you. And the first one I think I'm going to have to read verbatim because this card only exists in paper. It's from the Warhander 40k commander decks. Canoptech Scarab Swarm. Four colorless mana for a 1-1 flying insect creature with feeder mandibles. When Cantoptech Scarab Swarm enters the battlefield, exile target player's graveyard. For each artifact or land exiled this way, create a 1-1 colorless insect artifact creature token with flying. So gentlemen, genius or jank? Trash. I mean, Death and Taxes is built on X1s with marginal abilities and flying is frequently how they end up winning a game. While I am deeply dubious about this, no flash on this thing. It costs four. There's no alternate casting costs other than like violing it in. I guess you got to do something on your way between every card in your deck and Yorion and Solitude on that Aether Vial. I'm not sold on this one. It doesn't seem fast enough to interact with the things you really want to attack a Greyguard over. And... It doesn't seem Wincani enough to spend four mana on either. All right. I think as far as something looking to serve as graveyard hate versus a combo deck, this is this is shit. This is not unplayable. You know, like 
a rest in peace feels slow by this format standard. But how is this against, say, like a hot bant deck or a lands deck where this is not a hate card, but you view this as this ancillary gets rid of some annoying stuff and makes five one ones. How is that at a four mana slot that is recruiterable and blinkable? As an Uro gamer, I am personally offended by the existence of this card, and I never want to see it played. That said, we are a deck with Force of Will and Dressdown. Dressdown is a card where maxing out however many copies we have in the 75 will be in the deck against Death and Taxes. It seems like a blowout waiting to happen, but also, if it does happen, it's going to be hard to come back from. To also further the example about Rest in Peace, let's say you needed a creature. Let's say you had to find a creature for a Recruiter of the Guard that exiles target player's graveyard. There's already a better option. You have a Remorseful Cleric, the 2-1 Flying Spirit that you could sacrifice in exiles target player's graveyard. A much more playable card than this. Yes, you don't get the value from this Scarab, but I think overall... You'd rather your either vial, either vial be on two rather than four anyway. I understand ticking up towards Yurian, but this card just like doesn't compare to Remorseful Cleric in my eyes. Uh, also, uh, I mean, what would it be if we didn't mention the fact that D&T players every month asking for Rest in Peace Bear? Um, you're not owed anything. Rest in Peace Bear, I hope it never comes, just so that way the meme can live on forever. We got Rest in Peace Bear. It costs black, black. It's a 3-2 with shadow, and it only affects your opponents, and you can cast all their cards. It's there. Just uh, add a color, whiners. So interestingly, when I thought Bryant, like Bryant was going down the graveyard, tutorable graveyard hate card, like I thought he was going to be going for Lion Sash, honestly, which is another thing that can kind of like be tutorable uh, while also sort of chipping away at the graveyard. Yeah, Lion Sash, the existence of Lion Sash, a card I obviously no exists, but haven't played DNT in a while. That's tutorable on multiple axes because you can stone forge it and you can recruit it, and it comes in vile on two and it gains value while exiling graveyards, uh, and it operates at instant speed once it's there, or if you can surprise it through a vile. I just I'm not feeling Canoptech Scarab Swarm. Unless the person who registered this list is just in a field full of mono Uro decks and need some way to shut the door in the mid game yeah like i can see the world where this card fucks like you play it you junk your opponent's graveyard you get like four one ones you blink it you exile your own graveyard you get a couple more like maybe a vial got blown up or something along the way a couple wastelands in there like i can see it but it does feel like it's working a little hard for sure and we've just spent six minutes talking about a card I had never heard of before we started this conversation. Let's move on to the next one. I, I'm sick of this thing. Okay. So the, I'm going to consider the next two as kind of one card because the theory is the same. Uh, I ran into multiple Death and Taxes deck lists playing both a playset of Chrome Mocks and some Gemstone Caverns as well. So, is this genius or is this jank? Uh, this is being played alongside Aether Vial, not instead of it. We just came from a format where Initiative was the best deck, and a lot of these Death and Taxes players were forced to play something else, and they got a little bit of a taste of, you know, ooh, how nice it was to have turn one Thalia Guardian with Thraben, or turn one Archon of Emiria. So I understand the desire to want to bring something you just enjoyed back to your previous pet deck so it makes a lot of sense why people would explore this that said i believe these choices made more sense pre-eldraine and eldraine when that set came out i thought the best thing that could have happened for dnt actually happened with death deafening silence because the issue with dnt in the past was that it really struggled to bridge the gap until turn two for thalia and now you have deafening silence into your Thalia. A lot of lists even run two Mind Break Traps in the board. You don't have to make yourself faster. Just play to the speed of your deck. I think that this decision to play Chromox and Gemsum Cavern in Death and Taxes is ultimately a bust. I did notice that the list that Phil linked us to here is a Yorion Taxes list, which has a lower density of Aether Vial, 
which is generally the thing Death and Taxes wants to be doing on turn one. It's like Mother of Runes or Aether Vial, and you have 20 more cards that can miss on those two things. And that basic planes go start to a game just feels so bad. I can see wanting to turn on Spirit of the Lab, Stoneforge Mystic, Thalia, previously mentioned Lion Sash, all of those. It does level up your turn one plays by a lot, but it's at the expense of long-term card advantage. I don't think the long-term card advantage is theoretically a problem, right? Because the idea is most fair decks, should you reach the end game of Yorian plus Caracas, like it is it is a real pain to try to grind through that. So losing out on a card in the early game is in theory not that big of a deal, should improve your matchup versus combo. Um, I, I would be on board with exploring this as an idea. Um, so the, the deck list that I've linked here, um, I'm not sure on pronunciation, it vaguely looks French, uh, spelled Parrotlet, P-A-R-R-O-T-L-E-T, Parallel question mark. I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced. I don't know what language this is. Um, I don't like the supporting cast they've got here. Uh, there's just like so many colorless lands. If we count Gemstone Caverns as colorless, it's Gemstone Caverns plus four Rashadonport plus four Wasteland plus three Urza's Saga. That is just like a lot of things that don't cast white, white cards. And that definitely makes me nervous. Yep. Hard to disagree with that. I know you have always been a proponent of playing more white sources in your Death and Taxes decks, and I did play Death and Taxes one time, one league recently on my channel, and it definitely comes up still, where you just have three colorless lands and a Caracas, and then you're the deck losing to Wasteland all of a sudden. All right, I'll keep my opening hand with Caracas, Gemstone Caverns, Aganjo, uh, Blood Moon, F. It's a thing. It happens. Like, basics are good. For sure. All right, I've got one more for you here, and I think I probably need to read this because I think a good portion of our Legacy Gamers have never played against this card, and that is Oust. One white sorcery, put target creature into its owner's library, second from the top, its controller gains three life. This card was an absolute heater in its standard run, but that standard format did not contain swords to plowshares or solitude. <laughs> What are we doing? How long ago was Rise of the Eldrazi? Like 13 years? Something like that? It was 2010. It was when I was living in years. England. Yes. Uh, the two pre-releases I attended when I was studying abroad in England were World Wake and Rise of the Eldrazi. I remember this very specifically. I didn't really bring my legacy collection over with me, and I built standard decks out of my pack winnings at FNMs. And I played a lot of Gideon Jura plus House decks. They lined up extremely well against the Mana Dorks, like Arbor Elf decks, because ousting a Mana Dork is probably better than Swords to Plowsharing or Bolting it, because not only is it gone on the turn you want it, which is turn one and two, you have to draw it again on turn three and then replay it. It's kind of card advantage in that way. This is legacy. Like I, I guess I would need to see the context of the whole list and what this metagame looks like, but I struggle to believe this card is better than Path, like, path to, to Exile. Exile. Yeah, if you need a ninth spot removal spell. The, the list did not have Path to Exiles. It had four oust, and I think missing some things like Merit Lodge that you just need to hit at instant speed is so important, especially with, you know... Uh, like A plus B creature combo decks existing, uh, like your cephalid breakfast sorts of things. Being able to disrupt things at instant speed is huge. I think oust being a sorcery is usually going to be enough to keep it out of the realms of playability. This this one, straight down the toilet for me. And we still have March of Otherworldly Light that's gone untapped into in this list. We went straight to oust. Uh, is this metagame just exclusively Death Shadow? Like, what are we... What are we doing here? I would want to know all the context, but this is the one that I am most suspicious of so far by a lot. All right, so let's let's do our our, our wrap up rating for the DNT section. Oust, absolute jank. Chromox and Gemstone Caverns. Where did we land on those? Acceptable, worth testing. 
it is an angle that I think is worth exploring, though we also have 13 years of data that DNT works without these things. All right. And uh, the Scarab Swarm, thumbs down. Trash. Uh, I get it. Uh, I'll say I get it, but I am suspicious of it. Maybe for your local store. Might be right for your local store. So we're going to move on to deck number two, which is Moon Stompy, or whatever you want to call it. And I had to read a card this time around. I had never seen this one before. The first one is Invasion of Regatha, which is a battle. So it's two and a red for a five. Are they loyalty still? What what are the battle corner things? Uh, They are not loyalty. I forget what they actually are, though. This came up on the Resilivables just... That I just watched. Uh, I I forget what they're called. All right. Battle points. Five shurikens in the corner. When Invasion of Regatha enters the battlefield, it deals four damage to another target battle or opponent and one damage up to one target creature. The transform side is a 4-4 prowess. If non-creature sources you control would deal damage to a creature, battle, or opponent, it deals that much damage plus two instead. Bryant is just making an incredibly pained face that I think sums up my thoughts on this one as well. I faced this in a league, and the pain face is mostly that this person built their deck with Invasion of Regatha in it, but then also in their Moon Stompy deck that has Chalice of the Void and Trinisphere, all these hateful cards, had main deck copies of Maddening Hex to support this card. And I was just like, what are we doing here? Did your 80% matchup need to be 99%? Like, why is that a good deck building decision? And that's what I was just thinking. I mean, I was going to trash this person's deck on air, but I said I would be a heel tonight. What are you doing? At least you have a coherent strategy in your deck. Come on. A not losing to Storm is a strategy I, that I can co-sign. Uh, we all know that when I brew jank for my channel, I start my sideboard with three Deafening Silence, two Null Rod, and then we figure out the rest. <laughs> Beating Storm has saved a lot of O5s on my channel. The 1-4 where I beat Storm in the last round. Specifically against Storm aside, and we didn't talk about Invasion in that situation. We talked about all the hate cards that were around Invasion. I have played this card in Limited, where it's solid. My issue is, Bryant kind of addressed it already, which is that non-creature sources aren't usually doing the damage in a Red Stompy deck. They do have some Planeswalkers. They might top out at Fiery Confluence. Uh, They might have Stomp. This isn't like a lightning bolt deck. You're not going to get a lot out of your Torbran effect on the backside. Uh, and the front side, going upstairs for four is a lot. Like Flames of the Blood Hand was a finisher in its standard format. Uh, three, dam- three mana for four damage is a good conversion rate if you're a burn deck. But I don't know that Red Stompy is a burn deck. And they have to sink five damage into this invasion before it becomes a 4-4 creature. Like, at what point are you getting your money back on the investment of how much damage you spent to get this thing to turn into a creature? At which point your untargetable, untargetable permanent suddenly becomes a creature that dies to Swords of Plowshares before it does any damage? Like, that's, this just seems like a lot going on, or a lot that could go wrong. And what if you're in top deck mode, which frequently happens in Red Stompy, if your opponent's doing any sort of interaction, like Force of Will your Blood Moon, Prismatic Ending, your Chalice. Now we're both just hoping that we get, draw the big card first and you draw Invasion of Regantha and your opponent's at 17 and not 4. That sucks. Uh, I can also see hero moments where like the, the board gets Supreme Verdicted and you just got to get those last four points across. It's Flames of the Blood Hand what we're looking for. So I, w- I want to talk about this whole life total thing in regards to battles. Um... I recently played a league with Invasion of Tarkir, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And I was finding that I literally could not afford to take a turn off to flip the battle because my combo opponents had relevant things to do with their life total. Um, Cycling Street Wraith, casting Doomsday, reanimating Grizzlebrand, paying seven for Grizzlebrand, Ad Nauz. Like, I absolutely could not take a turn off to flip the battle into the side that makes the payoff worth it. And I think if you're playing a battle in Legacy, you really need to ask yourself, like, is the juice worth the squeeze? And with this one, it totally is not. We do have another battle coming up on the list that I'm much more interested in, but I don't know about this thing. 
Also, I looked it up. They are defense counters that go on to battles. Defense counters. Okay. All right. So the next one is Curse Mirror. Or sorry, Cursed Mirror. I actually know what this one does because it's in my Godo CDH deck. It's two and a red for an artifact. It taps for a red. And then as it enters the battlefield, you may have it become a copy of target creature that's on the battlefield until end of turn. against gains, gains haste. So in CDH, you would copy a Godo Bandit Warlord. You get the other half of the Helm combo and you win. Phil, what does this do in Moonstompy? So let's say you play a Turbo and Rabble Master and you're not playing a matchup where the prison pieces matter, hypothetically. Turn two, you play a Curse Mirror. You can copy Rabble Master for one turn and it gains haste. Is that worthy of seeing play? What are you trying to do with this card if that's not the play? Okay, that's that's so much damage, first of all. Like, you get an extra goblin. So you're you have a goblin from turn one. You have two goblins from turn two, plus the rabble masters themselves, and they're like everything's gonna trigger off each other. That is a gajillion damage. Uh more frequently, what happens is in the mid-game, you play a Caves of Chaos Adventurer, you copy it with Cursed Mirror, you get an extra step through the Undercity and get five additional hasty damage. I have been impressed with this card. Like, it's a mana rock when you don't have something to copy, and when you do have something to copy, it is usually worth a pretty absurd amount of damage. It's an embarrassing top deck sometimes, but this this one gets the passes the playability marker for me. Maybe only as like a one of, but I, I was impressed. This one rose to prominence when initiative was everywhere in the meta, because you don't have to copy your own thing. If you copy your opponent's White Plume Adventurer, now you have the initiative and you get a clap in with your 3-3 if you want it, or you could just protect your mana rock. And it is a way to steal the initiative based off of someone's own initiative creature. So that's when it came up. I imagine it got a little worse when when fewer opponents are doing the thing you want to do with Cursed Mirror. It did earn its stripes during that time, and I can see wanting a little bit of that around. That is a really cool usage of that card. We're going to go ahead and move on to 8-cast now. Um, I want to start with Spatial Contortion, which is being played as a Dismember alternative. So for those of you who weren't around during Oath of the Gatewatch, this is one and one colorless. Like, you actually need colorless mana, or target creature gets plus three, minus three, until end of turn. I'm going to just front load this one. I think this card sucks. I think it is so important to be able to literally have Dismember. Dismember for one regular mana gets rid of things like Collector Oof that you care about. And I think it's so important to be able to get yourself out from under Collector Oof or another card of that nature with minimal mana investment. Yeah, I can see that like the thing you said is absolutely true. I can also see you have to take four to answer a Dragon's Rage Channeler that may or may not have three power at this point, and it always feels bad when you have to use Dismember against a deck that's actively pressuring your life total. Like, someone who's seen a thing for Collector Oof is a different sort of calculation than which of these two three power one drops am I going to spend four life to remove. And in that spot, I'd rather have Spatial Contortion, even if it is more susceptible to Daze. The life total does matter. You're an ancient tomb deck. You want to stay out of burn range as long as you can. I understand the appeal to it. I think Dismember is probably better, but I get it. Bryant is just making frowning faces in the corner. I'll assume he has no opinion here. We'll move up to the next spicy one. It's 8-cast, the Chalice of the Void deck with 8 forces and a fast clock. We don't talk about 8-cast. Yep. I mean, I think that you two just covered it. I mean, there wasn't really a whole lot else to say. I also think that, like... It, you're, when you're the blue deck, blue's core is bouncing. It has the best bounce spells in the game. We've already talked about marches. The blue march doesn't really solve Collector Oof either. So you probably do need some sort of permanent removal for Collector Oof specifically. And these are really the only two options. All right. Next up is Patchwork Automaton. So this is two colorless mana for a 1-1 Ward 2. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, it gets a plus one, plus one counter. I've really only seen this card in Steel Stompy variants. I haven't seen it in 8-cast yet, but I don't feel like Steel Stompy, or I'm sorry, I don't feel like 8-cast struggles to get the job done ever since Urza Saga. Kind of just like, it makes 12-12s and 
two activations and then it just clocks your opponent to death. And it can even gain trample using Shadow Spear. I don't think that Patrick Automaton does anything for the deck that the deck doesn't already naturally do. Yeah, Automaton also reads when you cast an artifact spell. It's not when an artifact enters the battlefield. Kappa Cannoneer is when it enters. Uh, I guess Psy is also on trigger or on it's a cast trigger. So you do have one thing that wants you to cast spells already, but a lot of the spells in the deck, there's like eight cast, the creatures, they're not going to trigger this thing. Activating Saga and tutoring with Saga don't trigger it. If you Ancient Tomb it on turn one and then go like Bobble, Mox Opal, you're miles ahead in that game. But like Brian said, I don't know that eight cast needs the help here. Though I did recently adapt vintage aggro shops into legacy using urza's workshop and patchwork automaton was a backbone of that deck which kind of is in that steel sompy range that bryant mentioned and this thing is an absolute monster in modern hardened scale strategies there's a lot of places is a really cool card i just don't know that a cast is a home for it yeah that that is exactly my thoughts on the card like very reasonable card like i have won vintage games with that card i don't think you need it here i think it doesn't add anything new to the deck. The next card I added, which is Hullbreacher, a card that is not really tech, but it's unique to seeing play in ACAST specifically. Matthew Vuk's showcase list played Hullbreacher. And I have to imagine that the thought was, if you look at the metagame data for Legacy at the moment, ACAST is by far the best performing deck so far post-ban. And if you're going to tech for the mirror, well, Holbreacher seems like a really good option. In fact, I think Control Deck should probably revisit the Narset Holbreacher plan. I don't know if you want days in doing, but if ACAST is the best deck in the format, Holbreacher seems like a perfect answer inside of it and outside of it. I think that this was a brilliant piece of tech for Matthew Vuk. Yeah, I agree. It cracks the mirror for sure. As a control player, frequently I'm saying like, I need to be alive until I resolve a Narset. That's the only time I feel safe playing your own Narset effect, especially one in an Ancient Tomb deck. Like You can turn one Hull Breacher out of eight casts, and that's going to mess up a lot of decks. Like, you bring that in in every combo matchup, every control matchup, cracks the mirror, makes a lot of sense. So I am a notorious hater of the mono blue whole breacher days undoing deck. I just think that deck often does not win the game, even when they do their whole draw seven thing. Like it just not does not guarantee a win. Like that deck just does not close the game quickly. You know what does close the game quickly? A whole breacher backed up by like a Kappa Cannoneer. A whole breacher followed by Urza's Saga. Whole breacher is a lot scarier when there is another thing other than it just its three points of power that's also pressuring your opponent because they don't have time to draw out or otherwise find an answer. And I, I am a big fan of this here. Uh, this one feels like genius to me. All right, let, let's talk about Is It Delver, which is a place where we've seen quite a bit of innovation with new cards. The first one we alluded to already, I'm going to start with Invasion of Tarkir. It's a two-mana battle, one in a red. It has five starting defense. And when it enters the battlefield, it deals two damage to any target plus X, where X is the number of dragons you reveal. So Murktide Regent is a dragon. And another card on our Delver list here is Sprite Dragon, which fell out of favor, but being a dragon now sort of gives extra value to Invasion of Tark here, getting three or four damage to any target. For two mana is a pretty good deal. When you flip your battle, you get a 4-4 dragon that when any dragon attacks, it deals two to any target. That's a lot of stats. It's a reasonable rate burn spell up front. You're not that excited about a shock, but if you get an incinerate out of it, it's doing okay. If you ever flip it, we talked about the invasion of whatever, invasion of deal four damage before. Invasion of not playable in Legacy. Yeah, that one we talked about, like, what is the payoff of flipping this thing? You put five damage into it to get a 4-4. Invasion of Tarkir, you put five damage into it and you get six damage right away. You get a 4-4 that deals two when it attacks, but it also triggers off every other dragon. Any sprite dragons or murktides you have laying around are also going to trigger. The first flipped Invasion of Tarkir immediately flips the second. Like, you end step bolt the invasion, you get the 4-4, you play another invasion, shock their blocker, attack the first invasion for six, and now you have two of these dragons, and they do stack, so you're casting multiple shocks every time any dragon attacks. 
that game is going to end very quickly. And I played Dragon Delver on the channel just this week, and I was impressed by how often just having four additional burn spells in your deck matters. Like You can go upstairs a lot better. It's worth the investment to flip the dragon, and then sometimes it's not, and you just kill your opponent. There's also a really crazy thing with Chain Lightning. Chain Lightning deals three to any target, and then that target's controller can pay red-red to copy Chain Lightning. You control the battle, even if your opponent is defending it. Chain Lightning with three mana immediately flips your invasion of Tarkir. Just self-copy, and then you get a dragon. And Chain Lightning is a card that Delver plays anyway. Uh, there's a lot to like about this one. Okay, I didn't know about that interaction. That's dope. Yep. <laughs> when it happened to me the first time, there is video footage of me going, okay, they're going to deal three to this. I don't have Red Red to send it back. Wait, it's not mine! And then immediately the thing flipped and I died. This seems much better than I expected. Like, I was like, eh, it's kind of cute. This seems legitimately good. Yeah, I frequently revealed one or two dragons. Uh, there were even spots in my league where it's like, mid brainstorm it's like oh my opponent will be at four after combat i'll keep sprite dragon and murktide region in my hand and then just four them it's it, it, it's a very interesting mode of this deck there's some subtle things that i don't like about this this is replacing other flex slots in the deck flex slots that more readily go to the graveyard i played a rug version like rug delver dragons invasion whatever you want to be calling it um and i was very frequently having trouble getting my dragon rage channelers to become three threes and my tarmogoyfs to become larger because this thing wasn't going to the graveyard it was either sitting in my hand or sitting in play whereas something like a bobble or a ponder or another chain lightning would have already gone to the graveyard and i wasn't the biggest fan of that I also wasn't a big fan of this in my mulligan decisions in game one. So if you are in game one and you are playing against a creature deck, Invasion of Tarkir is like a totally reasonable card. And if you're playing against a combo deck, like this is the last thing in the world that I want. I just wasn't a fan of a lot of my flex slots becoming more dubious in terms of informing my mulligan decisions yeah we had exactly that conversation in my patreon discord after i released my video you are cutting delver of secrets for sprite dragon for one and then you're cutting the additional preordains uh, some number of baubles if you're on chart of course or predict you're cutting those sort of cards for four more two mana shocks with upside this deck very much plays like the old is it delver decks like remember storm chaser mage they were like two fire blasts at the top end those decks from like 2011 2012 whatever that era was that was the thing people did it plays more like that deck you have a ton of burn you're just going to the head all the time if you get too far behind you are not going to draw out of it because you don't really have card advantage you just have more burn to make sure once you, your creatures have to stop attacking, that you can go to the face for the final points, and you just have to play the deck differently. We've got another one here that's seeing play not only in Blue Red Delver, but quite a bit elsewhere, and that's Chrome Host Seed Shark. Two colorless and a blue for a 2-4 flying Phyrexian Shark. With, whenever you cast a non-creature spell, incubate X, where X is that spell's mana value. And as a reminder, when you incubate, you make a token with X 1-1 counters on it, and for 2 mana, you can turn it into a 0-0 creature. So the dream with this card is play it, cast a Force of Will, incubate 5, pay 2 mana, have a 5-5, five five, and off your 3 mana card plus 2 other mana, you have 7 power. That's the dream. I think this card is a trap. It reads like Monastery Mentor. It reads like Resolved Shark Typhoon. And it is neither of those things. I think the extra two to get your creature on the back end is a big ask. I already don't think that resolving a Shark Typhoon is a particularly powerful effect in Legacy. Because then what? Like you ponder, you get a 1-1. One, one. You brainstorm, you get a 1-1. One, one. And then you start casting Uro. And uh, now we're doing something different. Uh, I don't like that play pattern. And this, you ponder, you get a an artifact creature with a plus, or you get an art non-creature artifact with a plus one counter on it that someday for two mana you can turn it into a non-flying one one. I'm not a believer in this. 
unless you're a deck that can use non-artifact creatures without any meaningful abilities. Like if you have some affinity or something like that, uh, you have Kappa Cannoneers, you have Urza Sagas, tokens, constructs that are going to get bigger. Maybe there's something there, but this is miles away from everything that it looks like it is. Even in Phil's scenario where you got to live the dream, you played your shark, you cast forcible, you made the egg, you paid two, you, uh, what is it called? Incubated. If you told me you could play a five mana five, five, like Delver wouldn't do that anyway. Control decks wouldn't do that anyway. Like this card just doesn't fit the bill. I guess the one nice thing is that the Chrome host seed shark blocks Delvers very well. It also like bounces off of the dragon's rage channeler but for three mana i think that this card is asking for a lot like your three mana cards in legacy should be winning the game not bouncing off of dragon's rage channelers i played this in a tesserator deck that did have other artifact synergies and it was and it was pretty solid and like in that video at the end i went and said yeah i would be excited to explore this in other shells and then after i stopped recording i was like you know in a fair blue shell i'm just like pondering and i'm not excited about this card anymore i'm not going to go back and edit the video or anything but i think this card is much more niche than it appears at first glance it's not monastery mentor is what i want to tell everyone this is not the only two in a blue two four flyer that we're going to talk about on this episode and i think this is the less exciting of the two. And the last thing in blue red that we've seen, List in the 5 dump had four copies of Bloodbraid Marauder, which is a two mana three one that can't block. And if you have Delirium, it has Cascade. So I've seen this card in other formats from time to time as sort of a mid-game value card. And I guess in Legacy, you're frequently going to be hitting decent things. But this probably comes at a deck building restriction of you can't play uh, Spell Pierce, minor, minor Misstep, Fluster Storm, or like you play them and you accept that you're going to miss on your Cascades some period of time. I don't, I don't know that I'm hyped about this. Yeah, I mean, none of the cards you just mentioned are in Delver main decks anyway, and you probably board out this dummy against combo decks where you would bring in all your i guess minor misstep is see some fringe play but uh bluster storm spell pierce those are generally sideboard cards the delver the core delver list is built to get delirium quickly like the four bobble action deck the payoff for doing all of that is a three one that also casts ponder or lightning bolt or delver i guess like i, I mean all the hits are good and if this was just a two drop with Cascade, it would be completely busted. But I think doing all the work to get that done is a big ask. And 3-1 can't block? Are those even stats we like in Legacy? I don't know. Uh, I'm suspicious. A 3-1 is not, like, embarrassing. You know, no, one, no one's going to point and laugh or anything. I will. This episode is called Tech or Trash. This card is trash. Next one. Let's go. Let's fight over Atraxa again. Uh, specifically, in the context of four or five color control decks, where are we at regarding natural order for Atraxa these days? And Brian, I guess we'll just throw this one directly to you. I am softer on natural order and harder on Green Sun Zenith. Can go in the same deck. You can't go one way or the other. People were trying like 60 card decks with mana dorks and a couple of tracks and natural orders and then there's a they've kind of emerged into 80 card decks with yorion the green sun zenith package zenith being able to get atraxa at the omega late game or get green initiative creature uh, in addition to the uro the coatl all that the leovold the grist all that other stuff that we're used to i think that's genuinely sick i don't love mass of mana dorks you have to play in a control deck to support natural order but i do like the natural progression of zenith to do kind of the same thing if we want to play a tracks in our deck it's interesting i don't actually view the natural order green sun decks as control decks like i more view them as like the bug leovold deck that reduke played at gp louisville like i view it as an evolution of that where now those decks play white like those decks are true mid-range decks in my mind they're not actually control decks like they've always been mana dork decks like they're just a, a different beast yep that's fair the next card 
on our list is another one that's actually we just came up in the Boston Roll Discord yesterday. This is Archmage's Charm. One of my Discord mods, shout out to King of the Depths, uh, asked a hypothetical question of, uh, like, isn't this card good enough? Why hasn't anyone really explored this? And then we had a little conversation about it. And then somebody, or and then King of the Depths was in my DMs that night, challenging me to brew around Archmage's Charm. So at some point in the future, there will be a deck on my channel where I have to play three copies of this card. All the modes on it are good. It, the problem is... I'm going to take a second to just interject with the modes. This is not a commonly played card. So this is three blue mana, blue, 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 for choose one, counter target spell, target player draws two cards, or gain control of target non-land permanent with CMC one or less. Obviously, three mana counter spell sucks. We don't even play two mana counter spell. We do like stealing Merit Lages and Construct Tokens and Aether Vials and Delvers. That's all good stuff. If you've played Modern ever in your life, you've seen all the cool things this can steal. And then just draw two when nothing else is going on is perfectly fine. This is a Modern staple. This card is very good there. The difference is Pyroblast, Days, Wasteland makes this card very difficult to support contextually because frequently in the type of Azorius core control deck that I would want to play this sort of effect in, you need two or three basic planes to make sure you're set up against Wasteland decks with your removal. And any basic planes that you draw is a turn you're not casting Archmage's Charm. It's kind of a lot to ask of a mana base. I think Brian's covered Archmage's Charm. Like, it's tough to disagree with any of that. I will be trying it soon, though, and you can bet there will be zero basic lands that are not islands in that list. Because that's just the cost of doing business. You want to cast a card like this. All right, Brian, you want to tee up on Doomsday here because... uh, your boy Ethan has gone mad. He has. If you're unfamiliar with Ethan Formula Chea, they are monkeys can't cry on Magic Online. Who knows if that's actually true? Scientists still haven't figured it out. And Ethan is one of the best Doomsday deck builders and pouts there are. Well, Ethan 5 would with a list featuring Liliana the Last Hope, Plunge into Darkness, Paradigm Shift, Cyborg Inverter of Truth, and then other people are playing things like Reanimate and Grief. So we're going to ca- talk about these cards within the context of Doomsday. So I think there's some interesting decisions here. Liliana, The Last Hope, you get to mill two cards and then return a creature. So that looks pretty good with something like Fast Oracle post-Doomsday. Maybe it gives you something to do with some of your extra black mana. It can also return a Street Wraith for what it's worth. So if you have a hand that goes like Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual, because Doomsday has shifted to being a Cabal Ritual deck. And when you do that, there's often a lot of games where you don't care about the threshold because you have nothing to do with that black mana. So that's one of the uses of Liliana and the Last Hope. What portion of the time are you actually viewing Lily as a combo piece versus... This is a removal spell that can help me win if I make it to that point. Like, where is this at conceptually? Do you have a feel for that? I honestly have no clue. It's a little bit on the meme side for me personally, but I can understand the thought process behind it. Are we just like not going to also talk about the fact that this list has planar void in the sideboard too? Uh, One black mana, whenever a card is put into a graveyard, remove that card from the game. This is spicy. The original Leyline of the Void. That card saw play for years back in the day, Phil. This is a tech that beats Endurance when you're a Doomsday deck because your things don't end up anywhere they can be tucked. It's also you know, Graveyard Hate where you want Graveyard Hate naturally. That does make a frustrating amount of sense. Uh, Doomsday decks were playing Relic of Progenitus for a little while where they could poke their own graveyard or exile it completely in response to an Endurance. Uh, yeah, that's a wild one. But it makes sense. The grief and reanimate, I think, is really interesting. Obviously, uh, monkeys can't cry is in the lab on all these other cards. But grief and reanimate, I've seen pretty steadily. Definitely grief, and I've seen more reanimates than I care to talk about. Grief just being another free piece of interaction. You're you're already a force of will deck. You're prepared to two for one yourself to protect your combo, and grief is an outlet for all those ritual black mana Bryant was talking about. Then reanimate. Can pick up grief. We've seen Reanimator doing that. That's a whole archetype in modern. I've also been BTFO'd where I interact with Thassa's Oracle and it ends up in the graveyard. Then they just reanimate it post Doomsday and then I die anyway. So there, there is some spicy tech here and I don't think I can smash or pass on any of it because I'm not 
I'm not that deep in the lab on Doomsday. If folks are winning with it and it like finding ways for Doomsday to beat the popular hate out of the sideboard, having the bigger the moving target, the better for the Doomsday community. When it when it was just Shouldered, we learned like, okay, I'm gonna have to beat a Shouldered game too. But then it's like, oh, it's reanimate. And then it's like, oh, you're gonna grief me now and you're or you're gonna cast off the Voidwalker, you're gonna beat me down post board. And now we're talking about Inverter of Truth. Like, what is going on here? And uh, it becomes a bigger target. Even if Ethan never plays these cards again, a 5-0 was posted that includes them, and now they have to be on the radar of every serious Legacy player when they're playing against Doomsday. And that's just mental strain on the community at large. I actually think that the Paradigm Shift tech is the most interesting out of everything we've talked about. Giving Doomsday another way to clear their deck for Thassa's Oracle is quite good. We've seen the Thought Lash decks. We've seen some of the Merfolk decks that play this card. But for some reason, Doomsday communities never really gotten behind it. And one of the easiest ways that you can beat Doomsday is Thought sees your Doomsday Surgical it. And Surgical has seen record high plays right now because reanimator is everywhere it's on top of goldfish so having ways to beat those surgicals i think is brilliant yep absolutely and i mentioned uh, in previous episodes i took cephalid breakfast to a tournament i made top eight and i won with thassa's oracle from hand as many times as i won with thassa's oracle from graveyard and just being able to exile your deck and cast that buddy just completely skips a lot of the commonly played hate for these oracle combo decks yeah, if I had to genius or jank for this section, like I, I would give this section genius with the caveat here that I don't understand what the mad scientist is doing or why they are doing it. I just look at the pretty deck list at the end and go like, well, I just think that's neat. Get into the weeds, figure out your in-out numbers for matchups, uh, and then use that to really make an informed decision about what you think about this Doomsday stuff here. This next deck is Cephalid Breakfast, and the card that I think is a hot topic right now is actually Staff of the Storyteller, and Cephalid Breakfast decks are playing it over the Stoneforge package. They're still playing Shuko because you can get it with Urza Saga, but they're removing Stoneforge Mystic for Staff of the Storyteller, so that way you can outgrind and live a little bit longer against these Delver decks while accruing value with additional copies or your Urza Saga constructs and that sort of thing. I know that some of my near and dear friends like Alex McKinley and Anthony Laverde are very high on this card, but personally, I'm a little bit lukewarm because I don't view that as what Cephalid Breakfast really wants to be doing. That said, I don't think Stoneforge is amazing either. The two of you have played more breakfast than I have recently. What are your thoughts? So I'll talk about this from the other side of the table. When my uh, my Cephalid Breakfast opponent plays a turn two Stoneforge, and that just represents a Cauldra that I have to deal with, or I die in a couple of turns to it, while I'm dedicating resources to fighting against that stuff, they have time to set up a combo kill. Like, I'm very scared of Stoneforge for Cauldra personally, I feel like I have all the time in the world versus staff of the storyteller. When a Stoneforge is played, a lot of times I'm like, oh shit, like I am in mortal danger. When a staff of the storyteller gets played, I'm like, eh, that's whatever. I'll start sweating if the second or third one comes down. And Stoneforge Mystic presents this puzzle to solve on the stack, which is if your hand has Force of Will and Swords to Plowshares, like if they're getting cauldra you're fine with swords to plowshares if they're getting shuko you wish you had forced the the stone forge on the stack because they're starting to set their combo up where like plow can also interact with their combo but now they're not just hanging out their plan a threat that gets plowed and you, you wish you had and they're going to take time to set it up uh the and the other card that gets played in this slot is baleful strix which is a thing that draws cards and blocks threats out of Delver and decks that are trying to attack you. Staff still blocks, but it doesn't have Death Touch. You're giving up a lot of leverage against a deck like Delver with Staff because you're not actually trading off. They can just pound through those things. When I, In my experience playing Breakfast, I have loved Stoneforge Mystic. Like I just mentioned Oracle comes out of hand as often as it comes out of the graveyard. Uh, Cauldra comes in uh, as often as any of those other things too. It's a genuine multi-pronged attack when you have stoneforge urza saga and you can oracle from hand or from the graveyard there's just so much going on and that it's hard to cover all of it 
staff, I am just like, okay, there's that. They're going to draw some cards. As a secondary thing while we're in this section, um, I also found a list that had Shaman Encore, which is one colorless and a white for a 1-2 with the same zero mana ability that Nomad's Encore has. I was not excited when I saw this because I usually don't feel like you need more of this side of the combo since Shuko is tutorable with Stoneforge and Urza Saga, but I figured it was worth pointing out while we're kind of going into the weeds of what you could reasonably see. It was a backup piece in the extended era of Cephalid Breakfast, but it's been a long time since I've read that card name. I would say that this is a tacky card, but ultimately it kind of feels like it's on the trash side. Yeah, like, what are we playing around? Like, Nomad's getting Surgical, and then also Aether Vial on Shuko, and then also my Urza Saga and Stoneforge Mystic can't get the game one. The The year is 2018. Phyrexian Revoker is everywhere. Yep, uh, that is not the case. Okay, we have about three minutes left in this episode, and we still have five decks we wanted to talk about. Uh, let's just speed run a couple of these. Elves, Newton's out there going nuts. Uh, the, the thing that I saw recently, like I'm very used to Newton coming up with something crazy and we all should be at this point. The thing that raised my eyebrows recently is I saw that elves has incorporated an Urza saga package. So now you can Zenith for reclaimer, reclaimer for saga, saga for soul guide lantern and cover anything given infinite time. So I am not testing this build. Newton is, uh, I know he's very proud of the list and shout out to Newton for not being afraid to go deep 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 into the depths on that one all right why don't we jump to reanimator with tyrannox rex which i suppose i need to read because that's a new enough one here so this is we'll ignore the mana cost you're not doing it from hand it is an 8-8 uncounterable trample ward for haste toxic for creature I'm not excited about this out of a reanimator deck. Like, you have access to all of the fatties that have ever been printed, and I don't feel like I need an 8-8 haste creature to get the job done if I can get a Grizzlebrand or an Atraxa or an Archon of Cruelty or a Sarah's Emissary into play. Like, I get that haste sometimes gets you over the finish line immediately, but I am not excited about this card as a reanimator player. I would agree with you, but the devil's advocate is that Ward 4 and Legacy essentially says Hexproof, and you can't Caracas or Swords it very easily, and it kills you with very few, you know, direct hits. Because obviously your opponent can chump, but the Toxic 4 kills you. I don't approve of it, but I understand it. Yeah, Ward 4, um, I have plowed and pyroblasted many Kappa Cannoneers in my life. Uh, eventually you do get 5 mana, but... Tyrannix Rex having you dead in three hits with haste. Turn one, you are not going to clear this thing if it comes into play. Where Grizzlebrand, Archon of Cruelty, all these other things that Miracle, White Source, Source of Plowshares to stabilize is still alive. It's simply not against Rex, but I don't know if Reanimator needs to solve that specific problem. Next up, I found a Cloud Post list that was playing Mawlock. This is another one of those Warhammer 40k cards, so sorry Magic Online gamers, none for you. This is Red Green X for a 2-2 Tyranid creature with Ravenous. It gets a plus one, plus one counter for each uh, mana you put into X, and if X is five or more, you draw a card. It has Terror from the Deep. When it enters the battlefield, it fights up to one target creature and opponent controls. If that would die, it gets exiled instead. I think this is a legacy playable card, but what the fuck are you doing with it in your Cloud Post deck list? You are not making red-green consistently. Stop it. Stop it. Yeah, I mean, po Post is frequently a Zenith deck, and it, it can just remove Collector Oof out of a Zenith. If you're at the phase of the game where you're casting Moloch for 22... Uh, you draw a card, kill anything, and then one-shot your opponent, whatever. Uh, but but yeah, I don't know how often we're getting red mana and green at the same time on purpose. Next one is the Teamer Cascade deck. This is Legacy Rhinos and with Crashing Footfalls. This is a modern staple deck. In Legacy, we have Simeon and Elvish Spirit Guides to power out turn one cans of Rhinos. Uh, if you watch my channel, you know Rhinos come in cans. Time Minsk and Boo in this deck. Uh, this build does not have Uro in it, but I've seen Uro in builds like this. 
it's basically a rug tempo deck, team or tempo, and it is adopted directly from the modern strategy. Do we think that this is a real deck? Like, do you think that this will be something people will be playing in six months competitively? It depends on what competitively means. Uh, it is being played by Eco Baronin, who is uh, a Magic Online Hall of Famer. <laughs> Not literal Hall of Fame, but if there was a Magic Online Hall of Fame, he would be in it. Uh, he did make second place in the challenge. And this is literally a modern deck with Minsk and Boo, Force of Will, and Spirit Guides added. Uh, the strategy is here. Uh, there is no backup plan. Even the two Merktide regents in the creature base, this is straight from modern. Uh, just adapted a few cards for the format. And this is a powerful proactive strategy. Eight power of trample on turn one is a lot to deal with, especially backed with the counter spells that Legacy offers. Four force of negation, four force of will in this beast. I can see it being in that like cheese garbage wheelhouse that Stompy is in for the discerning player who enjoys casting force of will. Stompy decks with force of will. Are those good? Is eight cast good? It could be in the same wheelhouse as that. I feel like this deck kicks my ass anytime I'm playing a questionable deck. It just has the capability of producing 8 to 10 power on turn 1, and you cannot underestimate that when backed by counter spells. I don't, I don't know how it feels to play against this with like, you know, a reasonable blue deck with a couple of Supreme Verdicts and counter magic, but... Playing questionable stuff, deck feels good from the other side of the table. I believe that legacy players are often slow to adapt to ideas from other formats. And this seems like one of those things that we could have been sleeping on for some time. That this is the best deck in modern. How is it not remotely playable in legacy? I'm willing to believe that this could be the real thing. This isn't unheard of. Uh, people have been doing this since basically uh, Minsk and Vu was printed you got another thing that's worth doing in the colors that doesn't mess with your cascade and we are adopting some of the tech from modern like i said these two murktide regions at the top end straight out of the modern list i think honing in on the deck list this could be a very real thing we got one more for you and this is a new card from march of the machine aftermath and this is in sneak and show this is the other three mana two four flyer i alluded to earlier two and a blue Vesuvan Drifter, Creature Shapeshifter, 2-4 Flying. You can look at the top card of your library anytime. At the beginning of each combat, you may reveal the top card of your library. If you reveal a creature this way, Vesuvan Drifter becomes a copy of that card until end of turn, except it has flying. Is this the Arcane Artisan that we wish Arcane Artisan was? Uh, this appears to be a reasonable body at a mana cost that Sneak and Show is already designed to accommodate. And it's a thing that what are you going to fight over this and hope to like, if you, you could let this resolve and hope to fade the creature on top for a while, you could spend your removal on this and then die to the actual show and tell this makes cantrips really good. Like a brainstorm can flip the thing from Emrakul into Grizzlebrand or whatever, uh, or put the Emrakul in hand on top. This feels like more copies of show and tell in a way that's kind of interesting, though it does open up main deck swords to plowshares like swords to plowshares is a real tool if we're main decking this thing so i think this is one of the more exciting things we've talked about on this episode i will absolutely be recording with this card this week i learned about this card 40 minutes ago 50 minutes ago whatever when we start first started recording this and i went oh this is cool like this is this is one of those ones where i have to know i have to have the firsthand experience playing this one i have a feeling it's probably on the wrong side of the line but this is going to dodge a lot of the things that people might bring in against you because it's just like looking at the top of your library i think this one's really neat in the context of sneak and show that is one of the few decks left in legacy that is playing the classic cantrip cartel of brainstorm ponder and preordain a lot of decks have moved off preordain you could still use preordain to set this card up so that's 12 ways to make this card active on top of just the random oh hey look it's an emrakul it being a 2-4 we talked about it not dying to lightning bolt I i'm willing to believe that this could be real yeah same here uh, i may or may not have my tcg card open right now putting them in my cart uh, this feels like a card that even if it doesn't end up breaking the bar of playability it's still going to be one of those cards that if you keep a legacy playables binder you probably want access to this thing because it's going to pop up here and there 
All right. So there's your financial advice of the day. Buy your Vesuvian drifters. If you need them in Japanese foil, you know, get them now. Bryant, have you added them to your cart yet? I'm not really a sneak and show fan. I'm sorry. More out there for the rest of our listeners. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed. We kind of had to whirlwind through the second half of these. But uh, remember, if you are mad about anything we said in this episode, tag Bryant on Twitter and blame him. He said everything that was bad, and we said everything that was good. <laughs> <laughs>